Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with your host, John O'Leary. I have a question for you as we get ready to delve into today's beautiful episode. Here we go. Here's the question. My friends, what happens when you can no longer pretend that the ground underfoot is bedrock and that the sky above is predictable? I'm going to ask that again one more time because I do indeed think this is something that each of us are wrestling with right now as we look in the mirror, as we look around at society, as we look around at life. What happens when we can no longer pretend that the ground underfoot is bedrock and that the sky above is predictable? Well, on January 1st, 2020, I'm sure that you were certain of a whole lot of things that would be taking place as you look forward into 2020. Now, halfway through, maybe it was looking forward to a vacation for spring that you had planned back in March. Maybe it was a wedding that you and your family had planned for April. Or maybe like me, you had a massive live launch party at a theater planned for the release of your second book, In Awe, slated for May. And then the world turned. The world changed. Borders shut down. Events canceled. Online learning became the new norm. Social distancing, a term we'd probably never even used once in 2019, became the word that each of us were using and living into every single day of our lives. Dining room tables became home offices. Chaos ensued as we tried to manage a global pandemic. There were, however, some unexpected outcomes as well. The pollution around the world dropped by 30%. Dolphins began exploring the Venice Canals again. Individuals slowed to identify what really mattered to them in their lives. Families reconnected over regular dinners or walks around the neighborhood. We came together. We came together. In uncertain, difficult circumstances, we found strength. We found camaraderie. We found compassion, faith, and hope. Well, my friends, halfway through 2020, there are at least as many uncertainties as what we were dealing with in the early days of this pandemic. The guest that I brought in to today's episode herself was reluctant in the midst of unexpected chaos. She strived to be the perfect mother to her three kids so that they would never experience the pain that she endured growing up. She never expected, though, that the chaos would ensue when her youngest son's hand began to shake, began to tremble, and began a journey that would change every one of their lives. Today, Janine Urbanic-Reed shares how she found a source of strength far bigger than her circumstances, and it serves as a reminder that no matter what uncertainty we face today, we can overcome those circumstances to live a more meaningful, more full and more inspiring life. So my friends, I encourage you today to buckle up. You may want to grab a journal. You may want to get a nice tall glass of coffee, ice water, or something to tide you over during this podcast because you're going to love my guest. You're going to love my friend. Her name is Janine Urbanic-Reed. So Janine, welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. 
Thanks, John. I'm so happy to meet you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's, it's our honor. It's certainly my pleasure. I've, I've loved getting to know you through your book, through your interviews, through your book launch, and then even before we hit record, through you and me just having coffee together for a few minutes. So I'm excited for today. You wrote a book recently, and the title of it, and I want to get it right because it's, it's a beautiful title, and even the subtitle works. So the, the title is The Opposite of Certainty, Fear, Faith, and the Line Between. Mm-hmm. We're going to unpack that today, but in short, why did you write that book? I came to a point in my life um, where I, I kind of had to make sense of it, really. Writing the book was my effort to make sense of circumstances that just were so much bigger than me. I, I was a mother of three kids. I lived my life trying so hard to do good. I was a painfully good girl <laughs> and a painfully really nervous, really good mom, determined, determined, determined. I would do everything right. And then my kids hopefully would be the recipient of all that goodness, right? And, and it's a, it was a good-hearted effort, you know? I just wanted them to be okay. And then what happens when a mom like me comes up against a circumstance she can't control? And what happened in our family is my young son was diagnosed with a brain tumor about 12, 13 years ago now. The book is about my spiritual journey, my journey as a person and, and learning to do life and heal those old wounds that had me thinking that life was about controlling as much as you can, <laughs> right? Which I still struggle with and, yeah. and which is, is true in a certain degree, right? We do what we can, but then there's always what we can't control and how does that work and how does God fit in this and how does my faith fit in this journey where is it true that only certain mother's prayers are answered? You know, I was asking some big questions with this book. And part of the writing was my process in kind of seeing what's true, mm. what is true. And, and what I found is a lot of what I thought before just wasn't true. I could just set those things aside and come to much, a much deeper faith in, you know, a power greater than myself in this universe, in good in this universe, and also in myself, you know. So in a way, I was turned completely inside out by these experiences and came out, of course, this is the story. This is our, you know, yes. we, we do this journey together. We come out better for it if we, if we put our efforts in that direction. The story, it's, as, as a mom, if only there, it's a beautiful story. Then your faith journey, I think it's an incredible story. I'm excited to learn more about it. And then the timeliness of all that we're dealing, all the yeah. uncertainty that we are dealing with right yeah. now in the marketplace, with our health, with our country, with our countries, with our racial challenges and inequalities, mm-hmm. with our lives. And so I'm excited today, my friend Janine, to unpack the story with you and to share your journey, what you've learned along the way. I'm a St. Louis, Missouri guy. I'm a Cardinal fan, as you may know, grew up at St. Louis. <laughs> yes. You were born in Chicago. You were born there, but you pretty quickly made your way out west. Just t- talk about mm-hmm. your upbringing. Well, I come from a Polish family from the south side of Chicago. My grandmother said that everything you need is on Pulaski Avenue. My husband still repeats that line when he went to meet her. That is really funny. <laughs> and, uh, and I know Pulaski yeah, Avenue. Yeah, it's a long road. <laughs> it's a long road. There was, uh, you know, Dove's ice cream parlor. There was the Punchki Bakery. I mean, which was true. Basically, that would be all I need in the world. Um, and the Polish shop with the good sausage, as opposed to, you know, the not so good sausage. So, you know, I come from a Polish family. I come from people with a lot of faith and a lot of love and a lot of determination and a lot of alcoholism. 
So, you know, as most families, it, it's a, it's a mixed grill. And, um, my parents were really young when, when I was born, my dad, they were both under 21. I think my mom may have taken her first legal drink when I was a couple months old. And my dad, my dad was alcoholic. And my parents, you know, to their credit, they, they just tried to keep doing better. And they were convinced, as a lot of people in this culture we live in are, if you could get the outsides to work, you know, you, you get the good job, you get the nice car, you have mm-hmm. your lawn clipped appropriately, then then the insights would come along. <laughs> so my parents, when, when I was young, moved us to California, Southern California. And, you know, the old story, there you, there you go and there you go. You know, you can't escape yourself. And, um, and, you know, my childhood, there was a lot of love and there was a lot of weirdness, too. And we didn't know what alcoholism was. You know, I didn't know what was wrong in my family. Um, I knew that I should be ashamed of it. I figured that out in school as when I started maybe mentioning what was going on, you know, in terms of arguments and things like that. I learned really quickly that look I got back from people. Ooh, okay. I don't want that. I don't want that. So I learned to keep a lot of secrets and this came to me to be like, um, I guess I started to believe that if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. Like I had this stage character, this good girl stage character. And I had kind of had that with God too. You know, I went to Sunday school and I loved church and I loved Jesus. And I kind of felt like there were things I had to keep to myself. You know, I, I, I allude to some abuse that happened before we left Chicago, um, in the book, but it really shaped me. You know, I was abused by a man in my mother's family um, before we, and thank God we left because it took me out of that situation. Yes. But I kind of look at it like, you Do know, you mean, I, how old were I, you when that happened? I think I was between like five and eight during that time frame. So it was a, you know, it shaped who I, who I was. Right. And I say that because how I started to heal was I heard women telling their stories. And I kind of think of myself, you know, you see those beautiful pictures of those Monterey pines along the coast in Monterey where the, where the branches are shaped by the wind. Mm. This is the story of how my branches were shaped and how I kind of came up with these ideas about myself and about God and about being safe in this world. Um, so the, the good news was my dad did get help for his alcoholism. He got sober when I was about, um, I was in college, my last year in college. And I started getting help for, you know, growing up in alcoholism, being, I started telling my secrets, which was profound and getting help therapy and, um, and starting to learn that it, there are a lot of people who have these same circumstances. A lot of people have these same secrets. I, I often think about what if in my grade school, we could have really told the truth in circle time, you know, how, how transformative it would have been for all of us to say, you know what, I'm really afraid too. Um, but, but, you know, Janine, a lot of folks that either have alcoholism in their family or don't aren't really Mm -hmm. clear with how that might show up and impact a family, a spousal relationship or a daughter growing up. So would you give a specific example of how dad's addiction impacted you as a little one or your entire family? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Well, there are inconsistencies. You know, I loved my dad dearly. Yet I couldn't count on, you know, who came came in the door when he came home from work. So sometimes he he you know he'd drive home and um, 
he'd be, have been drinking, you know, or have a few beers on the way home, or he had a social, you know, I'm doing air quotes, social um, engagement after work, you know, and he'd come home and there would be something would set him off. Yeah. You know, first he'd be the jovial, sweet, like laughing, fun, drunk, and then something would set him off. And for a person growing up with that, and I think also for a spouse, you learn to walk on eggshells because it's anything but setting off dad. Now, the thing that people don't realize too is that it's not just when a person is drinking that That's they're right. so erratic. You know, it's those hangover mornings when they're filled with shame and they're looking for somebody to blame for why they feel so as badly as they do, right? And um, it's often we blame the people closest to us. So I had to be so perfect. And, and it seems like this was a struggle you've, you've, you have still. You've had your entire yeah. life. And I'm curious because you yourself became an alcoholic. At, at what age yeah. would you say, man, it really started not at this age. And then I recognized the issue and I began, became able to redeem it and reform from it at this age. Well, I started drinking when I was 15, like kind of the so-called normal, normal in our country, right? You know, beer or, or the, you know, mason jar filled with all the various liquors from somebody's parents' liquor cabinet. And I think that right away, alcohol did something for me. It didn't necessarily do for my friends. When I took that first drink, I felt pretty fabulous. I, I, I mean, and, and this also tells me that I have a problem because I can still mm -hmm. remember that. I mean, how many people can remember the burn and the feeling of, oh, well, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm actually funny and I can dance and I'm actually kind of cute, you know? Um, it transformed the shy, very, very afraid girl. It was like my missing part. And there's no mistake that alcohol is called a spirit right? Some people believe that alcohol is not, I kind of, I, I think there's a lot of validity to this, that um, alcoholics are looking to fill that God-shaped hole. And I inherited that God-shaped hole fairly. You know, my dad's a great person. We're quite very close today. Um, there's so much healing in my family, which also I think is, is a hopeful story. Um, but boy, when I first poured a, poured a beverage into that God-shaped hole in me as a 15-year-old girl trying to navigate this world, that was magic. And, and a lot of my drinking career, I you know, could manage. I had this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing where um, I could manage to, to look. I always wanted to be the good girl. You know, that was my saving grace was you had to believe that I was okay because I couldn't stand the wilt in your eyes if you saw what was really going on inside of me. So I could manage that sort of, and then there would be the blowouts yeah. and then there would be the blow. And I would always say, Oh, I, this has never happened to me before. Oh, I've never done that. Or, Oh, here's the excuse of why I drank so much at that fraternity party. Um, so what happened for me is I did, my dad got sober and I start, I saw him transform and I never thought that drinking was his problem. And I loved my dad dearly my whole life. Um, however, at the end of his drinking, I really, um, I didn't think he had a drinking problem. I thought he was a jerk, you hmm. know, that, and that's the problem with this disease, right? Talk. It's like if a person has cancer, like my son, like I actually had cancer as well. People give, people are sympathetic, but here's a disease that just uh, affects how you deal with the people you love the most and cuts them off. It's brutal. So what happened for me, you know, I write about it in the book. I, <laughs> 
I had been trying not to drink because I, at this point, became convinced I could become an alcoholic someday when I was really, really old right. if I didn't watch it. <laughs> if I didn't watch it. And I was about 23, 24. I graduated from college. So I wasn't one of those like she's flunking out, call, you know, call the rehab. It was like, no, look at all. Here's her list of accomplishments, why she cannot possibly be an alcoholic. But I couldn't not drink. Ultimately, that was the measuring stick. I could stay stopped for periods of time. And then I couldn't, then there would be an excuse. And my last drunk was pretty uneventful, except for that next morning, um, I looked in the mirror and I really believe it was God. You know, I do have a faith and I always have, I had this hunger for a spiritual connection, but I looked in the mirror and it just, I said, you're an alcoholic, Mm. you're an alcoholic. And I started in that, from that day, I called a friend who was also a sober woman and I started getting help. And there's so much, you know, also in my story, I realize, and, and writing it down has been such a blessing for me because um, every big transformative moment in my life comes from that simple word, help. How about that? You know, that simple prayer, help me, help me. I'm out of good ideas. So you raise your hand, you ask for help, you begin taking the next best step forward along the journey, which... Exactly. That's really been your mantra your entire life, doing the best you can going forward. You get married, you have a baby, then another one, then another one. Life is good. I understand that you raise these kids in a wildly protective manner. You are going to keep them <laughs> safe, man. They are in bubbles. You're feeding them grain that you're growing in your own garden. I mean, these kids are highly protected. Why do you think yeah. you were so dramatically protective of your children? It's so kind of ridiculously obvious <laughs> to me now. It's like, oh, honey, I just give myself a, a, a warm, like, self-hug, like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. You know, I didn't want them to ever experience what I'd experienced. And that was a child abuse from that man in my mother's family. So there was like, yeah, just no, you know, I would yes. be very overprotective in that way. And then I actually think that's a good thing. And then there was that... Um, I felt like, okay, so by the time I'd had children, I'd been sober for a while. I'd done a lot of work on myself. And I kind of felt like, okay, this is my fortune in life. I've checked the boxes for family tragedy at a young age. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, Done with that one. And it is kind of funny. Done with that. Okay, God, are you paying attention? Here's my yogurt card. Look, look. You know, we've punched three out of five. Um and, I'll, you know, obviously life doesn't work that way. So I think it was all from a really good intentioned way, place in yes. me and I, that I thought I could protect them. And I would just work harder. I would give my bone marrow, I mean, to protect them. You know, I would give anything in me my, my, on a cellular level to protect them. And I think that was my way also of reparenting myself, yeah. like feeling like I, my childhood had been so unsafe. Well, you, you do as great a job as you possibly can for your three little ones. And then Mason yeah. and Janine, I believe it's in kindergarten. Would you, would you share how you knew something was going on with your little boy? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this adorable little boy who just little dimple and just kind of toddles his way through the world. And he loves everybody. Everybody loves him. Um, and his little hand started to shake. And it was just a strange, more like you'd see in, a, in kind of a, someone with Parkinson's or someone mm -hmm. of an old age, right? So that was 
something to notice and to bring up to the doctors. And then um, he began to have headaches. Now, migraine headaches run in my family of stressed out people, <laughs> shockingly, right? So, right? so I took him to a neurologist and the neurologist, you know, anybody who's had kids, you know, you the worst part of all of these tests and these doctor's visits is waiting to be told your kid's okay. Like the, you know, the, the prenatal tests and then something like this. Yeah. Um, so I, the neurologist said, Oh, he's, he's fabulous. He's wonderful. And he has nor a normal tremor, whatever that is. I've come to find that that was not, that was obviously a missed diagnosis and migraine headaches. So we went on that way and, and me trying to get his diet more perfect, right? Is he alert? Oh, is it chocolate? Is it, you know, and, and trying various things just to, is, it's dehydration. Yeah. If that physician had caught it a bit earlier, would it have made any difference in the overall length of recovering the challenges that you're going to face as we unpack more of the story? You know, that is, that is the big question. That is what I wonder. You know, that's the thing, the thought that comes to my mind. Um, if the tumor had been a seed of itself and it yeah. could have been removed because ultimately when we do find it, it can't be removed and it's a slow growing tumor. They believe Mason's had it his entire life. You know, the other thing that might've happened at that point is that he, at such a young age, Mason might've, we might've fallen into a really aggressive treatment that might've, it might've really hurt his brain. Yes. Right. And his yes. abilities. Cause he actually, so there was, so I grudgingly admit that there may have been some grace involved in us not finding it that early. I mean, that's the way I have to look at it, right? That's the hard part with these difficult things and these missed opportunities. On, on the one hand, I say, well, what if we, it could have just been plucked out of Mason at that point? And on the other hand, what if, what if we'd gone into that kindergartner with aggressive treatment? Would he have been would his brain have been able to evolve to the point it eventually did? And would he have been able to grow up to the point he eventually has now? I don't know. You, you unpack this story that we are uh, walking down the path of with Mason. You also share Mm -hmm. as you're going down the path of your spiritual journey and you use, and I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this so terribly. I just apologize to you and any other (laughs) Polish human being in the world on the front side of this share, but Busha Gruci. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Am I close? That's my favorite chapter in the book. You're pretty close. I, I say Boja Grushy, but you know, Boja Grushy. grew up in California, grew, well, grew up on Cal, in California. So who knows it, um, how I, if I say it right. But yeah, there's this idea of what did you do to make God so mad at you? And I say in the book, it lives in me like a dormant virus. You know, um, my grandmothers were just, you know, again, lovely, lovely, wonderful yeah. people. Um, but that was their attitude, you know, if there was a, if there was a tragedy, <laughs> if there was say there was, I mean, they re- literally would say, what did you do to make God so mad at yeah. you? You know, my mom, my parents were smart and young and forward thinking, and they disavowed this. Of course, they didn't teach me that because they tried so hard to push it away. But I really believe there's some, something in the family, in the genes, there's this kind of like, it, it gets in there. I've, I always think many people with a religious background, even though they know better, they have that sense of somewhere deep in their soul where yeah. they think, well, uh, what, 
what am I going to do next to offend this God, to, to, to mess it up? Yeah. What have I done to cause this thing? And one of the quotes that I, I loved that you've shared, I think, live and in the book is, I believe in God. I'm just not sure I trust him with my children. Tell me what exactly. you mean by that. <laughs> exactly. Well, like I've shared in our conversation, I really, by the time I had my kids, I'm a sober mom. I feel like that should be in the plus column, right? I'm really showing up to my kids. I'm really trying to make break this family cycle of alcoholism and dysfunction. I'm praying to God, like, okay, I know that I need a spiritual connection in my life to replace that spiritual connection in a bottle that, you know, my people are, are inclined to. Um, so I, I have a God in my life, but how much do I really surrender? And that's my, you know, that is my acknowledgement to my limits, the limits of my surrender. I believe in God. I just don't trust him alone with my kids. And that is a lot of my story. And a lot of my journey with Mason is what the heck is happening? This is not okay. This is not okay. So let's say, let's go down that. You, you recognize this is yeah. not okay. The, the first diagnosis must have missed something. And when do you get the diagnosis that indeed something is going on with Mason? That it's not a, in quotes, normal tremor. Curiously enough, Mason's, um, Mason's third grade teacher who told me that um, Mason's tremor was starting to affect his ability to write in class. And he suggested a chiropractic neurologist, something that I'd never heard of. You know, I made the appointment the same day and we met with this gentleman in San Francisco. He was actually um, not woo-woo at all. He's yeah. pretty fabulous. He spent quite a long time with Mason doing various tests. And he, by the end of the session, he said, there's something going on in his brain. Yeah. And he told me precisely where in his brain there was some, something glitching. And he said, you know what, we need an MRI. And I, of course, recoiled and, you know, went into shock and said, well, but the neurologist, the neurologist at this big, important hospital, which I cannot name, <laughs> said, um, said he was okay. She said it was a normal tremor. And he just was so sweet and so gentle. And he said, well, why wouldn't we just take a picture? Let's just take a picture and make sure. And we did. And it was just this, it was so obvious. And it was a, it, and that's the thing, the nature of Mason's tumor and the, to understand our journey, it's a slow growing tumor and it's wrapped itself around essential brain functions mm -hmm. and uh, brain structures, I should say. Um, so it can't be removed without really, without completely, well, possibly killing him. I mean, it would be, a, a, there would be too many risks to remove the tumor. So our, our, path is to live with this tumor and to treat it and to find people to treat it and find our people, you know, so that's, and that is the challenge moving forward. The neuro, neuro-oncologist described Mason's tumor. It was the best description I could think of. It's like roots under a sidewalk. They're slow growing, but that's the kind of damage you can see. It breaks the concrete. And so that's what we've been dealing with. And I say, I, how I put it is, you know, our family began at that moment orbiting this unpredictable yeah. tumor. Well, let's talk about what you orbited and what the journey looked like going forward. You, mm -hmm. it, it's in reading your book, it reminded me actually of my own mother and father's journey. You, you know a bit about my sure. story. Yeah. And I think the real heroes in my book and in my life are not the one who's interviewing you right now. It's actually my family. It's my parents, it's the medical team, it's the community, it's God that kind of guided us through this wild experience together. 
And I got the same sense from yours that Mason probably doesn't feel himself like the hero of this journey. He's just one of the participants in a miracle story. So let's talk about going forward from that simple, in quotes, picture of his brain to the treatment that you would endure to some of the mighty challenges Mm -hmm. that he would face and what got you through it. Yeah. Okay. Boy, there's so so much in what you just said, right? There are so many heroes in any one of these stories. And um, what I think is most powerful is that we are ordinary people who are called to do extraordinary things and push beyond our limits. And I think in my story, tap a source of strength that I call God, you know, I can call it good. I can call it God, but I didn't necessarily know I had it, you know, and that's the, that's where I think my story is helpful in the world that I wasn't the superhero mom. I was an ordinary mom going back to getting that picture of Mason's brain and going back to that doctor calling us in my husband and I um, to, to tell us this news that Mason has a tumor, you know, um, this isn't the story of me perfectly then informing Mason he has a tumor. You know, I, it came out in the car and Mason was looking at us like, wait, what, what? I have a tumor. I mean, it was just like, oh my goodness. It was what, like, what is it like launched. for a mom to be looking at her pride and joy with the films <laughs> revealing a tumor in the brain? I mean, brain cancer, right? I mean, it, it just, it, it's yeah. everyone's worst nightmare. And the only thing that might make it worse is if it's a brain tumor for one of your children. So as a mother of this little one, what, what goes through yeah. your heart and your mind when you get this diagnosis? Well, the feeling is the image of a caged mama tiger. You know, it's like all that emotion and, and you can't, what do you, you can't do anything. It's like, I felt like I was crawling out of my skin and there were things I could do. Of course we did. And you know, really, really worked hard to find the right, treatment for Mason and ask smart questions and you do everything you can, but then there's this limit. Then there's this of what you can do. So that element of powerlessness, you know, I felt it before in my life with various traumas I'd been through and, but the powerlessness as a mother is probably the only thing as bad as the powerlessness as a father, you know, (laughs) to not be able to fix it for our children it's just horrible. And one of the reactions that I had around that powerlessness is that I'd rather be anything but powerless. So I'd rather be wrong than powerless. So when people started coming to me, well, well, you know, did you know that a vegan diet would be very helpful? Now that, you know, God bless a vegan diet. And we have tried just about everything. But there was that thing in my mind that said, if well, if a vegan diet could help him now, does that mean that the um, pork chop that I gave him, you know, his favorite food, uh, the hamburger caused this? You know, how long did you nurse him? Um, You know, they're always like, oh, no. I feel like we parents, and especially mothers, I don't know, I took on a lot of blame because, again, I'd rather be wrong than powerless. It's, it's less terrifying that I made some huge mistake because there's this hope that I could fix it. And a lot of my journey has been learning to live in a world where I can't, my, my power is limited. Now, duh, right? We know this. But, you know, there's this illusion that I can protect my kids. And, and my story, you know, if we just left it there, it would be too terrifying to write down and read. 
there is a grace, there is strength that comes in us and through us and through the, a bigger community that supports these parents going through it, that supported me going through it, that enables us to somehow we move through this experience that is just terrifying. The worst. It's, well, not the worst. I guess the worst would be we lost him and we didn't. So there's, there's, there are degrees of worst. That's true. And in real time, you're trending toward losing him. It's uh, a non-operable yeah. brain tumor that is growing in size. It's going to lead him toward yeah. a moment where he's in a coma. How long was he in coma? Probably around six weeks. Um, and, and during that time, again, I, I was like, felt like I was like the little Dutch boy with the finger in the dam. I write this yeah probably better than I speak it, but I felt like I, it was my job to keep like, okay, the glass is half full. It's half full people. Because if I were to acknowledge like the tidal wave on the other side of that dam, we'd be lost. So while Mason was in a coma, I, I would say, well, it's coma like, <laughs> you know, um, he had a massive bleed in his brain because like also these brain tumors, they're all different. You yeah. know, it's not like a species of like, we have a golden retriever and the golden retrievers always look like this. It's more like we have this hybrid mutt unique thing. We don't know what it's made of. It looks like a dog, you know? So um, Mason's tumor was prone to bleed. And um, he, that was, that was the consequence. Not all of these brain tumors are like that. So yeah, he had a massive bleed. He was in the coma and that again, how much more push to the wall can I be? How much more talk, surrender, surrender Dorothy, right? How do I, how does surrender look in these circumstances? How does surrender and do everything you can to save your child look? Because they kind of both have to be there too. It's just, it's, that's the challenge. It's like a balance board. You write, you know, there's so many stories that we could go into now, but yeah, was there a single low water mark where you were at the absolute bottom, where the dam had broke, where yeah. you weren't able to surrender? It was almost more like, I think I should just quit. I should give up on it, on it all. So what, what, was the, what was the darkest day of the soul for you? Came out of that coma. You know, again, this kid is amazing. And he has, he has an incredibly strong body to hold this tumor and to hold all this treatment. And he came out of the coma. Uh, we got him into a wonderful rehab center in Houston. We live in Northern California. So this was far from home, which was very difficult. And um, there was a neurological treatment. And he was at the time 13. He was 13 going on 14. And it was difficult to find treatment for a six year, six foot tall, 13 year old. <laughs> so we go to Houston. These people are have very well regarded. It's actually uh, standing in the gym. I mean, there are all these little moments where we're cheering. Yay. He says his first word. It's mom. What could be better than that? You know, yet then he starts to backslide. And there's some conflict with the doctor there. Most of the medical people in our story were wonderful, yeah. really wonderful. But there was some conflict with this doctor. And you know what, we got him out of that hospital and yes. into another. My husband and I, the, the gift of us, we're both oldest children. We're both super stubborn, which makes for an interesting marriage. But um, my husband got him into Texas Children's Hospital. And, you know, Mason's had hydrocephalus. So it was, again, it was like, oh, my goodness, setback, 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 you know. This was a hard part of the story to write because I kind of actually had it edit out whole pieces of it because it was just too hard. 
It was just too hard. So there was a moment Mason had that brain surgery to fix the shunts in his brain shunts work on the cerebral fluid and keep the drainage going. So people don't get headaches who have tumors or blockages. Um, and it could be potentially fatal if there's yeah. a blockage of cerebral fluid. So we go back to the rehab. That doctor and I make peace because I will do, it's like survivor, but the stakes are higher. I will eat anything <laughs> for this child. So I make peace with this doctor because the therapists there were amazing. And then something else happens. And I know it's, I know there's something really wrong. So I get him back to Texas Children's. He's, yes, he's got, and it's again, the, the neurosurgeon there who we loved confirmed he needed yet another brain surgery. And at the time, my husband wasn't in Tucson because he's juggling a career and we have two other children too in California. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. I've been sleeping in those they call them um, sleeping chairs in hospital rooms, which is kind of an optimistic title. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, for that. a while, <laughs> I was away from my support system. I was like, I can't do this. And I called my friend Joan um, and I said, I just, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. This is what's happening. And she paused and she listened to me and she said, I get it. You, you don't think you can do anymore. You, don't, you can't do another night. And I said, yeah, I can't, I can't. And she said, she paused again and she said, listen, you're doing it. You're doing it. That was a transformative moment in my whole life. I was doing it. And that's what I write a lot about too, is that courage isn't like, oh, I'm feeling so courageous and fabulous right now. I feel like Wonder Woman. Courage is that moment. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I say help. Asking for help is courage, right? I can't do this on my own. Surrender is courage. Prayer is courage. And then somebody says, you're doing it. And that's, I think that's probably the most relevant story to our times right now. But this, when a crisis stretch, stretches deeper and longer, and we look ahead to that road, how am I going to do, I can't do another fill in the blank with a time frame. I can't do two years of this. I can't do six months. I can't do another week of it. Yet we're doing it today. And there's, that's where the grace comes in. We're doing it today. In this moment, am I okay? You use that, that word a lot me. in the book, and it's a. I, I love the word so much. I named my first girl th that title, Grace. What, what does mm -hmm. Grace mean to you? What, what does that look like in action? My daughter's middle name is Grace, by the way. It's a wonderful name. Well, I always think of the story of the fish, and the one fish says to another, "What do you think of this water?" And the fish is being yeah, yeah. surrounded by water, and the fish says, "What water?" You know, <laughs> I think that's grace in our lives. It's all around me. There were so many people who showed up for just a scene in my life to put a warm hand on my shoulder and say, or hand me a glass of water. That's all grace. Mm. The fact that my husband and I could walk through this together, this most difficult experience of either one of our lives and have our arguments and have our moments and yet hold hands and, and come together over and over and choose us and choose our family. That's grace. Um, the doctors who came into our life, that lives, that's grace. You write about a belief you formerly had in a Santa Claus God. Mm -hmm. And I think even for those of us who have no faith at all, we, we do have a faith in a Santa Claus God. We can, we can step into that one. What, what does that mean for you? A Santa Claus God? Well, <laughs> exactly what it sounds like, really. Like, here's my list. And, you know, to my credit, I thought I had a reasonable list healthy children, you know, 
I would like healthy children. Um, I would like, you know, financial security. I would like safety. I would like peace on earth, right? That would be good for my healthy children. And, and in exchange, I will be very, very, very good. But what happens when you're still very, very good and you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing and circumstances just get harder and more difficult and you're not getting the goods in the way. You know, I think what I've come to realize, you know, for so long it was the miracle would be Mason, that tumor would be plucked out of that boy. That would be the miracle, right? Let's pray for the big miracle. And at this stage in, in um, the experience, you know, 13 years out, and yes. I have a 23-year-old son sleeping downstairs as we speak, I come to see that my definition of a miracle, my list that I hand to God in that Santa Claus way is, is shortchanging. Plus, the other bit of wonderful information is that I don't have to do anything to earn God's grace, that I'm good enough as I am, that God accepts me that I don't have to be so perfect. And that's my other message. You know, moms out there, oh my goodness, you're doing hero's work. <laughs> and, and you're enough. You are enough. You know, I think when you pour your heart into a book, it's uh, therapeutic. And I, mm-hmm. I know from you, you, you wrote this book assuming no one would read it. Not because you weren't hoping people would <laughs> yeah, not read exactly. it, but you wanted yeah. to be vulnerable. You wanted to be real. You didn't want to hold yeah. back anything. You wanted to share truth, yeah. and uh, I, I think that's really, really beautiful. I also know from writing a couple of books that getting the subtitle right is incredibly hard. It might be harder than writing the entire dog on book. So your subtitle is Fear, Faith, and the Life Between. Talk about that. Well, I think it's that idea again. It's this, it's this balance board, right? It's not fear and faith. It's not an either-or situation. It's like a mixed grill. It's like a soup or a stew. It's, I have a lot of fear. I have a lot of faith. And I'm somewhere on the number line, you know, on on, on most days. I do not have the kind of faith. And that's where the title came from, too, that I wanted the kind of faith where I just knew, like, there would be no question or doubt that things would be okay, that I wouldn't be so afraid. I've been so afraid that this has been my thing to deal with in life is fear. I've been afraid. I was a scared little girl. And I became a scared woman. And, um, and then I got a big faith and I got this relationship with God. But you know what? My fear didn't go away. Does that mean that I don't have good enough faith? That, and that's some of this is, I don't believe that it does. I believe that I can have both and that I'm always dancing this dance, right? It's, it's more of a dance than a yoga pose, this faith of mine. <laughs> <laughs> how appropriate during these times that we live in where everybody's showing know, how right? great their yoga poses are and yet <laughs> yeah. that's just a moment in time this is a dance and sometimes it's awkward and ugly but it's still a dance forward and I think it leads into a quote yeah. that I like you, you use it I think a couple times in the book you talk about you don't want to live a life that you hate while you're living circumstances yeah. that you do yeah. so you, you don't want to yeah. live a life you hate while enduring the circumstances that you do hate. Talk about that. The first part of that is that I don't have to pretend that I like these circumstances. You will never get my rubber stamp like, oh, it's great Mason has a brain tumor and has had to endure so much pain. No, I will never rubber stamp that and go, oh, that's great. Has a lot of good come out of that circumstance? Absolutely, absolutely. So, and what I had to learn, I think there was a time in that hospitalization that I write write about 
where I realized I was waiting to live until this got better. I was just wait. It was almost like waiting to exhale until circumstances got better. Then I could, I could have a life. Mm-hmm. And then there was this moment where it's like, Oh, I, this is the life I have. Wow. This is the life I have. What can I do in this day? And at that point, Mason was in Texas children's hospital. Talk about angels on earth. But at that point, Mason's at Texas Children's Hospital. And what can I do in this day, in these circumstances, I don't co-sign and I don't like to take care of me, to find, to, to seek God. What can I seek God to seek good, to seek joy in these circumstances right now? I don't have to wait till like, and how this is relevant now. I don't have to wait till coronavirus is over. I don't have to wait till quarantine is over. What can I do right now in this minute, in this day? And at that point, it was really simple. There was a beautiful little neighborhood right near that hospital. And I just started taking walks. I mean, it's simple. And we're not talking about, you know, I, I, then I launched my career as a fine arts painter. You know, <laughs> it wasn't that. It was like, I, I went for a walk. I got an iced tea with tons of lemons, which actually makes me very happy. <laughs> you know, it was little things. I called friends and asked how they were doing. Um, little, little steps. And, you know, that's what it's funny because the other thing that crisis does for us, it can pull away all the non-essentials and what we're left with can be gold, right? So to have to be life boiled down to its most essential, what do I care about? What do I really want? I want connection. I want love in my life. I want to matter. I want to reflect back to people, other people that they matter and Sometimes that's a little easier when I, when all those circumstances, I'm not worried about SAT scores. I'm not worried about where's Mason going to go to high school? Where's he going to go to college? Uh, you know, us, I mean, this culture, it's been, a, there's, there was a lot of pressure. Talk, talk about Mason's siblings. And the reason for the question, I think frequently we ask things out mm-hmm. of um, our own story, but I, I mm-hmm. never thought once about what my siblings went through during my five months in hospital or a couple of years yeah. of surgery that followed. Yeah. I never once, why would I? I was the one going through everything, not them. And then I read mm-hmm. my mom's book. I read his, her memoir. And I recognized not only who the real heroes were, but five of them were my siblings. Five of them. Yeah. And all that they went through yeah. and all that they lost and all the struggles they faced and all the nights they spent at home without a mom or a dad next to them and all the nights yeah. they went to bed without their mother or father tucking them in, all that they gave up so that mom and dad could be with John. And I don't, I'm yeah. just curious, how, how are his two siblings doing today? And then how, how did they do during that, the, the long t- decade plus of this recovery? You know, this is another reason I wouldn't say this is okay with me. This is, you know, the circumstance I would have never wanted my children to endure me not being there because that was one of my big things. I will be, I am the present mom, you know, Um, and I don't want you to ever be hurt, scared or scarred. And here they are, they're scared and I'm not there. You know, that was, it was horrible for me and it was really scary for them. My daughter and I, my daughter was pretty young when this was going on. She's two years younger than Mason. My older son was going into adolescence and they were, you know, I tried, they had grandparents around them. Thank goodness. Um, And it was a lot, it was difficult. It was difficult. It's something, it's a trauma that we're still, you know, sometimes you need to, sometimes you need to get a little time to cushion the wounds enough to deal with them till after. And, you know, we, we've talked about this and we, you know, the hard part with my other kids is I, 
I don't want to betray their confidences. So I, I'm careful what I say here. What I would like to say, though, is that they would never, my older kids would never have the character and the empathy that they have if I had succeeded in protecting them so well as I had intended. So that's the good thing that has come out of this. You know, Austin and Mason had been um, very, very much, you know, Austin was three when Mason was born. So who was this little boy coming into his space, taking his grandparents? What the heck? Um, so they've gotten a close relationship. So that's a good thing. And yet I think, like I said, you know, that um, story about, um, the Monterey Pines and the wind shaping the, the shape of the tree. My other two children have definitely been shaped by this experience. And my, my daughter, Sarah, when Mason was in the hospital, you know, and I may have gone out to the bathroom or something was at, at 10 and telling the nurses to wash their hands. She really came into that mother role and really, you know, also very kindly um, supported her brother and the other thing that siblings can do, and this might have been your experience too, is when Mason came home from the hospital, they treated him the most normal of anyone. That's right. He was still their annoying brother. He still didn't what get What a blessing it is to have siblings TV. who just don't care, man. Get off the high horse, exactly. come back down to reality. Yeah. So it's, it's a challenge. And, you know, I, I think all parents were always trying, even without extraordinary circumstances, to balance that love and, you know, parse things out evenly. And I don't know. I think we, it's just, I, I haven't been able to master that, unfortunately. Janine, you won't rubber stamp this as being, oh man, it's all good. The, the iced tea is full of tons of lemon and I am awesome with what has happened to me in my life. I, I get that. Yeah. And I think that's appropriate. But I am curious, what is the most important lesson that you've learned through this wild life that somehow has been yours? I mean, it's story yeah. oh, experience many of them tragic and yet here you are today today in the live inspired podcast what, what's yeah. the primary blessing that you've learned through these periods of profound change and uncertainty that love is always enough hmm. there's always enough even with you know my I, you know, my parents, my family, I talked about, you know, the difficulties growing up, there was love in this crisis with Mason, there was always enough love between my husband and I, even when we were annoyed, when I was alone, you know, always, there was always enough. Um, and that I, you know, love, God, good, all those are interchangeable words to me. And that gives me hope, you know, and I have access to a source of strength that I didn't know I had. And it's more of a lunch money situation, I say, than a um, 401k, which I would prefer to know I have this accumulation of grace and strength. But whenever I need it, and you know, Mason's been having a rough go lately, and whenever I need it, I have the strength, I, I, I get the strength I need. Even though I don't feel like, oh, I'm fabulously strong like Wonder Woman, I still get that strength. So that's the hope I would say. That's what I wanted to bring to people. We gird ourselves against tragedy. We gird, gird, as probably we should. Yet when the worst happens, love is enough. Strength mm. is enough. You are enough. Beautiful way to pivot now into what we call the Live Inspired Seven. So these are seven okay. questions, Janine, that tie all of our wonderful guests together. And the very first one, it's a layup question. Feel free to choose your own book if, you, if you'd like but what is the best book you have ever read? Oh gosh, this is so hard. I would have to say um, 
The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. You know, it may help me survive my childhood. And, and it became, this is how I became a writer. I just immersed myself in these worlds we could create in a book. So The Secret Garden is one of my favorites. The Velveteen Rabbit. For those, oh, I love The Velveteen Rabbit Anna too. Mott. Any, any, mm -hmm. I'm going to demand that you in, uh, introduce me to her because I've read all of her work. I just think she's, yeah. I love this dynamic dualistic mindset that she has between the left and the right and good and evil and this, the, the creative way that she views the world and this di dynamism that she has. And I think it's really yeah. cool and not coincidental that you two are friends and dear friends. Yeah. And I, you know, Annie's work is so relevant at this very moment in time because it's the same, it's the same thing. How do we find God in this moment? You know, and I steal this line of hers all the time, God with skin on. We need God with skin on a lot of times, right? And that means that means that friend, it's, it's you in my That's screen right. right now. It's like that smile, that, that connection right now, so important. It is, and it's important for dear friends. It's also important for the, the people we barely see as we go through a drive-through yeah. to pump our gas or get say hello or don't to the barista. The, the yeah. Putting skin on love is incredibly important. So question number two, Janine, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little girl that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I would say fearlessness. I think there was a time in my childhood and I can even picture the Polaroid where I was fearless and just so fully myself and comfortable. And that's been my journey to try to get back there. I think you're close. I think you're awfully close to picking it all the way back up again. So fearlessness. I do. You'll need that for the third question because it is, if your home caught fire, and I know you have all kinds of pets, all the pets are out, your husband, oh, the, yeah. the kids, everybody's <laughs> out of the house, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you race back in and save? You know what? I think I would grab the painting I did that is the cover of this book. At this point, it used to be photographs, but now those are all online. <laughs> you know, those are all backed up on the web. So, but the, I um, the painting's this is awesome. One of my paintings on the cover. On the book I have, it's it's four by six. I'm curious, how big is it actually? It's small. It's like eight by ten. Okay, and what what yeah. what yeah. what art did you use to create it? Uh, it's acrylics on it's acrylic on canvas. Yeah. Okay, it's it is stunning. And I understand that it took you a while Thank to get the cover right and it ended up right with what they chose. I'm glad it came right from you. Question number four is if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? Well, I'm going to aim high and say Mary, mother of Jesus. <laughs> I write a little bit about Mary. I've got a Mary thing going. I have this charm um, I wear all the time. and. Um, you know, she, she would get it. She would get it. You know, have, it's like what I call no matter what faith. It's that fierce walking through constant surrender and keeping your heart open through it all, you know, um, and through extreme tragedy and extreme joy. Mm. Beautiful. What's the best advice you've ever received? You know, the best advice I ever received was from my friend Joan, which I told the story about you're doing it. You're doing it. You don't think you can do it. You don't think you can do life. You don't think you can do like a whatever. Right now that's quarantine. You're doing it. Mm. And the other one is don't give up. 
don't give up. And that was very helpful in writing this book because some days were very long, but don't give up. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Don't be so afraid of making mistakes. Make some mistakes. Try new things. Push it. Janine Urbanic-Reed, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I think it would be, God is good. God is good. Who knew, right? You know, after how angry I've been about this path we're on, but I've set why on the shelf. But there's always, you know what? God is good. And to steal something from uh, life is good. Even with all these things, life is good. I've heard you a couple times say, I put why up on the shelf. Tell me what that means. Yeah. Well, I think that sometimes a a big block for me, at least, was that, well, why did this happen to Mason? Why did God do this to him? You know, and that's, that's again, that Boja Grigi, right? Why is God doing this to me? And I actually had to come to believe that God is not doing this to anybody, but God is giving me the grace and the tools and the care from other people to walk through this. So I put why on the shelf because I don't think I'm going to understand why this happened to Mason, why this happened to our family. Why did this happen to me as a child? You know, I, I don't think I'm going to understand it. Um, and you know what? That's okay. I'm much more happy when I don't try to understand it. Well, and I don't think anybody could have understood that while you're going through this journey, you would eventually be launching a book on the lack of certainty in life during a period of time that we've really probably never had less certainty in our lives and more yeah. angst and more, more, more divisiveness. We've seen so far yeah. apart, and yet your book reminds us we are called to be drawn together as one. So, Janine, I just want to thank you for your work. Thank you for your life. Thank you for raising an incredible son, a beautiful family. And thanks for sharing part of your story with us on the Live Inspired podcast. Thank you, John. It's been just a joy to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, the book is called The Opposite of Certainty, Fear, Faith, and the Life in Between. The author is Janine Urbanic-Reed. <laughs> Uh, My name is John O'Leary, and my friends, this remains your day. In spite of some uncertainty, this is your day. Choose to live inspired.